The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome to the HD Insights Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. As always, I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communication, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group, and your host for this program. There are a lot of well-known commonalities for people with Huntington disease. Chorea, for example, is probably the physical symptom of HD that most people are familiar with. But there are other motor symptoms, behavioral symptoms, or cognitive symptoms that are part of the lived experience of HD. On this episode of the HD Insights podcast, we dive into a feature that you probably wouldn't have otherwise thought of in terms of progression of Huntington disease, and that's speech. Dr. Adam Vogel is professor of speech neuroscience at the Center for Neuroscience of Speech at the University of Melbourne. His team works on improving how we recognize, describe, and treat communication and swallowing deficits in people with progressive neurological disorders, including Huntington disease and Parkinson's disease. Back in November of 2019, Dr. Vogel was selected as a platform presenter to share his research with the full audience at that event. I found his research intriguing and wanted to provide him a platform to help raise awareness to that research and the potential it could bring to the HD community. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Adam Vogel. Well, Dr. Vogel, we really appreciate your time today and thank you for joining us here on the HD Insights Podcast. It's a pleasure, Kevin. Thank you for having me. I guess I want to start off. I know, you know, it's a, some really challenging times. Um, so first of all, I, I know you're in Australia, so it's the start of your day. It's kind of the end of my day here on the East Coast in the, in the United States. But just, you know, how are you and your family doing during, uh, you know, this whole uh, pandemic? And specifically, you know, how are things in Australia? Like what, you know, what steps have been implemented where you are um, regarding everything that's going on with the COVID-19? It is a very interesting and, and different time for everybody. Uh, in Australia, we've had a lockdown for a couple of weeks now, which means all non-essential travel is banned. And we have to remain in our houses unless we're going to go to the supermarket. I think very similar to the East Coast. We're very lucky over here, though, because we have very few cases of COVID-19 um, confirmed, which means out of the 25 million people that we have here, only about 5,000 at the moment, I'm sure that number is increasing daily, um, are affected by the virus. Um, I'm trapped in the house with my two kids and my wife. I really enjoy getting away and traveling for work, but at the moment we haven't had the opportunity to do that. So um, it's all very new for everybody and um, hopefully it won't last for too much longer. Absolutely. Well, in the meantime, you know, we're happy to have you on so we can start to talk about, you know, some other topics and and take people's minds off of things. So I, I really was um, very excited to have you on because I really enjoyed your 
platform presentation in Sacramento uh, back in November at HSG 2019. So I guess let's let, let's start there. So your your research really specializes in, in work around speech and communications, and in particular swallowing in neurological disorders. Take us back and, and tell us about what initially got you interested in these functions in this area. I worked as a psychologist. Uh, sorry, I studied as a psychologist back in the day, and I was really interested in communication as something that would um, lead me somewhere where I wanted to be able to make a difference. And uh, my first job was at the Great Ormond Street Hospital, which is in London. Um, specialist service that worked in neurodisability. In that space, I started working with some kids with profound and significant um, genetic disorders that were affecting their speech and swallowing and uh, working within a team of um, professionals like psychologists, neurologists, and um, occupational therapists, physiotherapists. I really enjoyed that um, cross-disciplinary approach to, to care. And when I returned to Australia, uh, it's quite a long time ago now, 15 years, 16 years ago, I looked for a job that was exactly the same. I wanted to work in a big team where we could make an, uh, a difference for the whole patient rather than just my own specialty. I came across a clinic which had a very similar model and it was in Friedrich's ataxia. So this is a rare, one of the most common cerebellar um, hereditary ataxia. And it's not dissimilar in, in terms of, uh, to Huntington's in, in terms of how it affects so many aspects of an individual and their family. So it does affect their speech and it does affect their swallowing um, and movement and aspects of cognition and so thinking. Um, and so that got me on the path of working in progressive neurological diseases and being able to ideally make a difference to individuals experiencing uh, those particular disorders. So I work in the ataxias Huntington's is one of the groups that I work with, and, and so is Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis. So you can see that I've got a, a focus on these progressive neurological diseases that affect adults. Um, there's such a profound impact on communication in all of these diseases. Uh, but unfortunately, there's not much evidence supporting some of the work that people do in this space. And I think it's... Uh, it's a field and, and a space that we can really make a difference from a research point of view. Specifically, then, um, in, in regards to speech, so you got into, you know, working with children, you got into the neurological um, disorders. Uh, what is it about speech? Was that, uh, was that an area that you really wanted to dive into? Or was it something that as you started working more um, with these patients and in this field that you, you realized maybe that there was a stronger connection than, than was really previously known? I think speech is, is so important. I mean, we're doing it now. Uh, a life without it is um, a life that, that lacks the things that make us human. If we're unable to communicate to the, our friends and loved ones, that, that really lowers our quality of life. If we can't communicate clearly, it's very hard to maintain employment. Um, you try getting a job with some sort of speech impairment. It's, it's a very challenging thing even to get through the interview. Um, so even talking to people on a daily basis, asking for a cup of tea or coffee um, can be a challenge for some people. 
and I want to be able to ensure that everyone has the capacity to communicate effectively. I know that there's new technologies coming on board daily that help with that process, but if we can maintain people's verbal communication, then we're able to maintain so many important things that, that make us who we are. There's always a stress uh, or a focus on mobility, so being able to get around and using our hands and uh, arms and legs effectively. But there is a time in, in many of the diseases that I work with that those aspects of someone's um, personality and uh, functioning are no longer working as well as we'd like them to. But speech is something that we can maintain for longer. So you, can, you might end up in a wheelchair, but being able to communicate still is, is such an important aspect of of someone. So ensuring that we can maintain that capacity for as long as possible is, is, a, is a real goal for us in our group. And that's a really good um, point to kind of follow up on here. So you're, you've been involved in some really remarkable work regarding speech as a biomarker in Huntington's disease, which is probably something that you know may not be as well known to people in the HD community. Um, like you mentioned, certainly the there's the well-known cognitive, um, behavioral, uh, and and motor function type of biomarkers. But how has speech uh, evolved as a biomarker for the progression of Huntington's disease? You're right. It, it is relatively new. Um, I think the what we've got a particular interest in is looking at those biomarkers that change even before diagnosis. So. So individuals who are carrying the, um, the, the, ver the genetic variation in Huntington's uh, may not become symptomatic for a number of years, um, but there are some subtle signs in people's presentation that suggest that there are changes in, in brain function. There's a lot of fantastic work in, in early Im brain imaging work uh, in this space. And as you mentioned, cognition is one of those markers that can tell us a little bit about function prior to, to um, diagnosis or symptomatic diagnosis. If you think about speech and how it manifests in, as a behavior, it, it draws on so many aspects that are involved in um, thinking and motor movement. Uh, when we're trying to formulate thought, just like I'm trying to do now, our brain is working very hard to generate some language. So the content of what I'm trying to say. What also needs to happen simultaneously is the muscles that are involved in speech, and there's quite a lot of them relating to the lips and tongue and how the lungs are producing uh, air and the vocal folds themselves. All of those need to coordinate simultaneously with the brain to be able to produce sound. And in a disorder like Huntington's disease, where there are some changes in brain function and there are some changes in motor function, you can appreciate changes in speech are going to occur simultaneously in that, in that space. So we've been looking at how we can measure those changes very early on in the disease life cycle. So this is prior to diagnosis in people who are carrying very genetic variation, but also people who are very early on in, in the disease um, cycle as well. The combined cognitive and language and motor elements make speech one of those very sensitive markers of, of change in, in the disease. 
it's not easy to measure. Um, and it, sometimes you can't hear these differences, but there are uh, particular ways in which you can measure the, the speech output, which tell us a little bit with a bit, bit more sensitivity how speech is changing over time in the, in the disease process. And, and specifically, so what type of, you know, assessment are, are you doing? You talked about, um, you know, there's, there's subtle changes. Now, is that something that, you know, is a, a person is able to detect? So whether it's, you know, somebody working on your team or in a clinic, or is that, is that very much more um, something that, you know, requires a bit of, of technical analysis or, or bringing more, um, you know, uh, computer uh, analysis or um, even some sort of um, you know artificial intelligent learning uh, into the fray for this. Yeah, there's lots of really good points there, Kevin. So we have a number of studies within this space that we're focusing on whether or not we can listen to individuals in this pre-symptomatic uh, or prodromal um, phase of the disease and and tell if they have something going on. Now I have a, a really good PhD student called Jess Chan. This has been her focus for a number of years. And she's just finished a manuscript which is looking at exploring whether or not we can hear differences in people's speech production. And um, this paper is under review at the moment, so we're not um, ready to, to say that it's, it's out there. But there are some uh, very subtle signs in someone's speech that can be perceived by the listener. I'm not going to go through what those those are today because I want to get that evidence out there and make sure it's peer reviewed before people are happy with it. But um, it's not a straightforward process. So we had a number of uh, two or three expert listeners go through samples in a blinded way, meaning we didn't know if they were healthy controls or pre-symptomatic individuals or early stage individuals with Huntington's. Um, and then they had to listen to about 20 different aspects of speech and rate their performance on a five-point scale. And so there are subtle differences in, in that space, but I guess there's a huge limitation in relying on listeners to make those judgments in that when I listen to someone, I've been doing this for 20 years, I, I can pick up various things that I hear in someone's voice and speech and someone else who may not be have the same sort of experience and expertise may listen and hear different aspects we may hear different components of speech, but then also applying a rating scale to that is, is a very challenging task um, because my rating will be different to your rating and, and someone else's rating. So although we may be able to hear some subtle changes, I, I wouldn't rely on that particular listening-based approach to tell us what we want to know about, um, uh, about speech. You're right, there are um, some computer-based analyses that help us in this space. Um, one particular measure or approach that we use is called acoustic analysis, which is effectively signal processing. So um, if you think of other domains in, in this um, assessment regime, something like electroencephalography, so EEG uses signals and, um, and interpreting that that information is one way of telling us something about the brain function and acoustic analysis is one way of telling us something about the physical signal of speech itself. You can use acoustic analysis to provide objective information on speech. And when I say objective, I mean something that's not fallible. So something that 
can tell us exactly what we need to know without human intervention or the biases that come with our own uh, listening and um, judgments that we bring to an assessment. The acoustic analysis can measure every aspect of speech. There are literally thousands of different algorithms that tell us about voice function or voice quality, how much control we've got over our speech, how precise our production of consonants are or vowels, and how important um, different aspects of timing are in, in the speech profile. So things like gaps between words, how long it takes to produce particular sounds, etc. So within the assessment protocol that we use, we have adopted um, a protocol that tries to capture all of the aspects of speech that I was describing before in terms of the cognitive performance relating to producing speech, but also the motor elements that are important. Um, in the talk that we did last year, I went through the protocols that we use, which rely on tasks like a sustained vowel. So this is just saying, ah, for a particular amount of time. From that, from that stimuli, we're able to pull out lots and lots of information about voice quality. Then if you have more cognitively demanding tasks, like saying, um, or describing a picture, for example, that's actually quite difficult if you have, if an individual has a cognitive impairment, because they have to think of what to say while they're also producing the motor movements. And then you can have tasks that fit in between those, those two that I've described, something like saying the days of the week, which is something that people have done thousands of times in their life. So there's um, no need to think of new or language, new or novel language, but there is still that complex motor element to their performance where they have to produce all of the sounds required in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc. So we can use a protocol that draws on demanding cognitive tasks as well as straightforward motor tasks to tell us about the function of an individual using that broad spectrum of um, performance across uh, across those those domains it's really impressive i i guess the one follow-up i would ask you know it i imagine it's potentially pretty challenging for um a patient that's prodromal um but you know I, i'm wondering are there other do you account for other potential factors just in the normal course of, of life or day-to-day -day routine that, that could impact? So I'm, you know, I think of myself in particular, it's, you know, it's a lot easier for me to gather my thoughts uh, in the afternoon than it is first thing in the morning, or, you know, if I'm feeling slightly under the weather, do you, you know, do you, do those sort of um, external environmental factors kind of make their way into the analysis as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I also think better in the afternoon rather than the morning. It is 7.30 in the morning for me, but I have been up for a few hours for some other meetings, but I'm going to use that as, as an excuse of why I may be a little bit disfluent today. Other features that do affect speech include um, tiredness. So that's actually a huge element of um, our own speech production. We can hear when our loved ones sound tired just by how they're saying sounds, how they're speaking. Um, that becomes exacerbated in some progressive neurological diseases 
where fatigue is um, or sleepiness is a, is a big feature. Uh, depression also plays a role in someone's speech production. If you think about a stereotypical individual with depression, their speech is actually slower, there's less variation in their pitch, and those features can be drawn out in someone's um, speech production. Uh, tiredness and depression are very common in progressive neurological diseases. Huntington's is one of those. And so if someone is designing a protocol for assessment in this space, they need to consider those as um, potential covariates in their analysis. To get around that, we uh, typically assess people at the same time each day. Um, the batteries are very short, so you don't induce change just by the fact that you're getting them to perform a task. If you think about some of the clinical exams that go on in, um, in the clinic, but also in clinical trials, they can go for hours, which is a really demanding process on, on a patient or an individual. Um, so any battery should be as short as possible and, and our speech batteries are you know, five minutes long so you don't induce change just by virtue of doing the assessment itself. So fatigue and depression are, are big features. There's some more subtle ones, things like hydration. So if someone is tired, so if someone is um, thirsty, their vocal folds um, can change in their constitution and that can affect the voice in very subtle ways. Not so much in, in um, terms of influencing an outcome in an assessment, but just considering it as one of those features that need to be mitigated against when someone's designing a speech battery. That's interesting. Now, in terms of an assessment, so walk us through a typical assessment. You said the batteries is pretty short with these. If, if I'm coming in for one of these, what would I typical, typically, and I'm having my own issues here, um, what would I have it's to contagious. go through during, <laughs> during one of these assessments? Well, I think um, there's, there's two ways of approaching it. So we design our batteries specifically for things like a clinical trial where speech is being used as an outcome measure to test efficacy um, of a particular drug. But we also have um, clinical assessments in which we would do assessments in conjunction with the neurologist, for example. So to speak to that setting first, if we were assessing an individual in that in a clinical setting, we would record their speech and, and I mentioned the battery is relatively short, we'd get a sustained vowel and maybe some connected speech, which sounds like a monologue or just describing a story, um, but also some syllable repetition tasks, which are quite sensitive in um, Huntington's disease to pathology. I'd then also um, speak to communication partners. Uh, there are some formal questionnaires that you can ask individuals who are working or are living with individuals with Parkinson's with Huntington's disease. Uh, and then we have um, developed a uh, dysarthria impact scale, which looks at, so dysarthria is the neuromuscular speech disorder associated with Huntington's. Um, and we have a scale that looks at the impact of speech on an individual's daily life. And it talks about things like whether or not employment is an issue, um, social relationships, any anxiety around the changes that are occurring because of the disease in relation to speech and covering um, different aspects of the patient profile, I think are really important in the clinical exam. So you're gonna cover things like the impairment, the actual 
speech changes that are occurring and the impact of those changes on both the individual with Huntington's and their, their environment. So uh, a clinical exam should cover every aspect of communication. Um, and you most likely pair that with a neuropsychological um, examination, which will then focus on some aspects of language or the speech pathologist could do that. Um, and then the interaction with cognition as well, I think is really important. From a clinical trial setting, the battery needs to be incredibly short. Those, those uh, clinical trial batteries are usually very long overall for a patient. So we, we try to make minimize those um, as much as possible. And they just include those speech tasks which are recorded and, and those that I've mentioned, the sustained vowel, silver repetition, picture description, for example. The good thing about speech is that you can record it and then do the analysis anytime after that. So um, one issue with some clinical exams is that every task that is being elicited from the, from the patient, the recordings are done then and there and you need lots of iterations or repetitions of that task to get a, a reliable measure. Speech is helpful because you just get someone to speak and then you can record it and then you can conduct any number of um, analyses after the point. So clinical trials, it's a very short battery. And um, if you are seeing a medic and their allied health team for a clinic setting, that needs to be conducted in a, in a much more um, holistic approach. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. Now for the, um, the platform presentation that you did in Sacramento, what was the, the study... Uh, well, how many participants did you have in that particular study and, and how long did it last? How, how, how many times did they have to come in for a visit? So we had two elements to the, the work that Just Chan has been conducting over the last couple of years. Um, one is looking at a single time point and comparing different disease stages for a, for a bunch of individuals with Huntington's. Um, mutations. Uh, and another was looking at how stable those productions are over a six month period. For that single time point, for that prospective study, we had uh, four groups, depending on how you want to split um, the cohort. But we had a pre-symptomatic group, and there's about 15 in that group, a prodromal group, so getting closer to uh, reaching symptomatology, has about 20 individuals. And then we had early and, and mid-symptomatic individuals and, and they had about uh, 10 to 15 in each of those groups. Um, they obviously differ by age, um, given that the disease progresses and their burden um, 
of pathology scores, which are based on the genetic profile as well as their age, varied um, because of their um, disease stage again. Um, within those four groups, we were interested in looking at how speech differs at a single time point. Um, so I, I think an ideal protocol is running a very long study following people from 20 years pre-symptomatology all the way up to becoming symptomatic. Um, but that's something that we could possibly pursue, but it's not something we have done in this particular study. Uh, I'm still relatively young, so I could follow these people for another 20 years and let's see if we can, we can capture that. But um, the second phase of the study is looking at how people's speech, how stable it is over a six month period. And we just had a really small pilot study in that space, looking at 10 individuals uh, who were recorded five times in a day, five times in a week, uh, five times over a month, and then at three and six months. And we wanted to see if speech production changed in any context over that period, um, because it's, it's important to know uh, what is happening, how people's, how stable someone's speech is, if you wanna know how much is changing. So just to go into that a little bit, if we are making assumptions about someone's performance based on one assessment, you can appreciate that perhaps that's not representative of what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis. If you have more assessments occurring over a longer period of time, then we can say that that's actually representative of their function. If we test someone at time point A and then their speech changes at time point B, how do we know that that time point B is because of the intervention that we've introduced or is it resulting from the fact that we've assessed them again or is it resulting from disease progression? So we need to know what stability looks like in the context of the disease in order to make judgments about the sensitivity of, it, of an assessment. And I think that's um, a really important aspect that's often missed um, in clinical um, exams in that we need to know what's not changing in order to make assumptions about what is changing. Now, along those lines too, I know um, in, in other clinical trials uh, related to treatments, there's a, a lot of focus on more of a, a natural history study or longitudinal studies. Is there anything like that in place for speech or is that something that's kind of next steps um, for you? Uh, it's an incredibly important aspect of, of any clinical research. And we started to talk about this um, natural history space uh, while we're in Sacramento. Um, I guess one of the issues with longitudinal assessment is that it's incredibly time demanding, but it's also incredibly necessary. So. Our work is focused on single time points. And I mentioned that very small pilot study looking at stability over six months. But what we do need is something that's following people over a larger period of time. And we've been building a, an assessment platform that people can do in their home. So this is a, a web-based assessment that we've been using in other populations to get as many people as possible to provide as many assessments as possible over time. Um, and I think what we're planning on doing is teaming up with our colleagues um, over at another university in, in Melbourne. Um, Professor Julie Stout is, is a supporter of the work that we've been doing. 
and working with her to find a way of uh, tapping into uh, providing home-based assessments, which would require individuals carrying um, the Huntington's very vari uh, genetic variation to provide assessments as frequently as possible. So people would click a link, then they would record using whatever devices they have available to them. So we've been building this platform so it works on mobile as well as computer-based um, software. And they would just run through a series of assessments which allow them to read a passage, say the sustained vowel, the syllable repetition, for example, and then maybe ask a couple of questions about how their speech is and how they feel. That's sort of consortia-based um, approach is entirely necessary for us to be able to actually answer some proper questions about um, speech in the context of Huntington's. Looking back on your experience and all the research that you've been involved with, what's something that in the course of looking at it or researching it or studying it that you expected to find or to prove kind of the assumptions you had, but something that turned out really to not be the case. Well, that's, it's nice to be able to think a little bit about the, some of the work that we've been doing over the, the last decade or so. Um, well, when you, an individual is a long way from diagnosis, there is an assumption that there's, there's not much going on from their speech. It's certainly not the impression from um, the majority of medics who might, or, or even um, early uh, clinical geneticists in, in early in the disease process who will meet an individual and provide some counselling about what a diagnosis or what a genetic profile might mean for the individual in their life going forward. There's no assumption that speech is, is changing in that context very early on. What I was surprised to see in our data is that even from that relatively small sample size that I was describing, you know, 15 and 20 in each of these groups, um, that there are very subtle changes in uh, speech that are very hard to hear for the listener. So I mean, I'm, I'm always an optimist and I think that the stuff that I'm doing is probably going to find something, but I'm, I'm also genuinely surprised when we do find these remarkable results that suggest that what we've been building towards is actually something that works in terms of being able to capture differences between different disease stages. So I guess that's comforting for us. Um, we spend so much time working in this space and having a PhD student who's been with me for five years now and her work actually turning out to be something that's telling us something we, we never knew before about the disease. I think that's been a real surprise and, and um, really um, a positive aspect of the process that we've been going through. Uh, I, I just think there's also so much work to do. We, we don't really understand how speech is working within the brain, um, how the changes in the neuropathology in Huntington's affect different aspects of speech. That's such a undis undiscovered space. Um, even how well speech interacts with different cognitive de deficits that needs to more exploration and I think the one of the new approaches that people have been adopting here in this space is the role that speech can offer in 
dual task assessments. So dual task meaning performing one task and then also doing another. I think that approach is going to be where some of the clinical assessments are going to continue, but using objective measurements like acoustic analysis. Um, so there are some surprises, but I think there's so many unanswered questions there that uh, there's another whole career for someone or for many people in this space to, to pursue. In terms of, you know, continuing the research in this space, do you find that um, the field is in need of more people to have this sort of specialty, to get in this area? Are there any particular suggestions or, or recommendations if people are interested in getting involved in this type of work or research that you would, uh, that, that you would recommend to them? I think there's... Um... Well, the, the new frontier in this space is using AI-based machine learning statistical approaches to, to sorting through data. Obviously, you need a lot of data to be able to make the use of and exploit those technologies. So um, one area that we're certainly focusing in on is that machine learning work and utilizing data we've been collecting over the last 10 years to inform judgments in that space. That's definitely a, a place that people could um, contribute from a speech point of view. There are only a small number of groups looking at speech in Huntington's across the world. Um, there's a fantastic colleague of mine in the Czech Republic, Jan um, Ruse, who's doing some great work in acoustic analysis and Huntington's. Um, there was a, a new paper that came out in neurology last year um, from the Huntington's group at Vanderbilt. And um, we've got some colleagues in Germany who've been working in this space um, on and off over the last five or six years, uh, looking at pre-symptomatic Huntington's as well as um, symptomatic individuals. And then there's another group in New Zealand who are looking at swallowing function in Huntington's disease, um, which I think is another under-researched space um, apart from a group in um, the Netherlands who've been doing that work for quite a while, there's, there's not much research in there where I think the community could definitely benefit from a, a critical mass of individuals um, pushing the field forward. One area that's really not well developed is um, therapeutic interventions uh, for both speech and swallowing in Huntington's. Therapies of behavioral therapies like that are very hard they're hard to develop, they're also hard to test, and they take a long time to, to evaluate. So if we can have more people join that space, I think that's, um, that's definitely an area ripe for, um, for exploiting from a, a, a scientific point of view. Well, hopefully this is a, a first step in helping to get that call out to, to people to join the cause. Um, Dr. Vogel, this has been fantastic. I, d I do want to ask you one last question, though, and that's out of everything that you've done, what do you consider to be your proudest professional accomplishment? Well, I'd love to say it was uh, related to Huntington's disease, but I, I think it's, it's more focused on one of my other um, progressive neurological disease groups, and that's in ataxia. Um, for the last eight years, we've been building a speech treatment tool, which is based on biofeedback. And I think it, it's 
likely appropriate for Huntington's. And so we'll, we'll definitely be trying to roll it out in the next couple of years in, in the Huntington space. But we've made a, a home-based therapy that actually improves people's speech when they've got a progressive neurological disease. Um, there was this prevailing wisdom in inverted commas that it's very hard to affect change in individuals with a neurodegenerative disorder because they're on a downward decline. I never really adopted that. I mentioned that I'm, I'm an optimist. I always felt that we could actually improve people's function despite the progressive nature of these diseases. And the therapy that we've been developing in the ataxia space has proven to be effective. So people's speech is actually improving with an intensive therapy that you can do in the home. So I think that's also important. Something that you have to go into the clinic, certainly in this current environment where you're not allowed out of your house, um, is not really feasible if you can do something in your home that provides you feedback directly and live. I think that's that's really valuable. So a therapy that improves people's lives by improving their speech is something that I've been really proud of. Um, and I hope to be able to do something similar in the hunting to the space, but uh, you'll have to watch it and see where we go with that. Well, I think we definitely have the right person working on it. So I, I want to thank you for all the work that you've done and the research that um, you and your team have done. And, and thank you again um, so much for, for joining us on this episode, Dr. Vogel. Thanks, Kevin. Many thanks again to Dr. Adam Vogel for help making the 15-hour time difference between our two locations work. I hope you enjoyed learning a little more about this line of research and that we could help provide some respite from the social distancing lifestyle so many of us are dealing with currently. There's a lot of amazing work being done in HD. If you're one of those people, a researcher, an advocate, a provider, and have an interesting story to share, or if you know someone we should profile in a future episode, feel free to reach out to me at kevin.gregory at hsglimited.org. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the HD Insights podcast on your device to make sure you automatically get our newest episodes. So until next time on the HD Insights podcast, I'm Kevin Gregory. Thank you for spending your time with us. Stay safe, be well, look out for each other, and we look forward to bringing you our next episode. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.